Welcome to That's What She Said About the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. That's What She Said is a podcast devoted to telling the stories of historical women who taught others about the Bible from the pulpit and from the page. What did they write? What did they say? And why have we never heard of many of them? Join your hosts, Dr. Marion Taylor and Kira Molman, as they dig up the words of these forgotten women and explore their lives, their influences, and their relevance for today. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. So today we wanted to start with a reminder of why we care about this project. Marion has a quote from a female scholar who studies preaching. Marion, do you want to read that for us? Yes, I was reading uh, Anna Carter Florence's book, uh, Preaching as Testimony, and she has a beautiful response to the impact that recovering forgotten female preachers has had on her life. And she says this, it struck me as a personal affront that I had never known these women existed, never heard their stories, never believed I was part of any tradition, never known the truth about the preaching women I came from. Clearly, my very identity had been compromised and possibly stunted. If only I had known, surely I would be a different person. I would be braver, stronger, wiser, more self-assured. I would be a better person and a better preacher. When I read that, I thought, this is why it's important to recover our forgotten grandmothers and great-grandmothers who read and interpreted the Bible. Because if we recover them, we will have shoulders to stand on. We will have an identity. And I, and I think that's very exciting. And so one of the women, or the woman we want to talk about today, is a woman that I think is worth remembering because she is, well, she's an amazing woman in many ways. And um, so we're going to talk about a woman named Elizabeth Rundell Charles, who's an English woman who was born in Devonshire, England in 1828. And she was born into a wonderful family, just an amazing family. She was an only child. Her father, when you read about him, you think, wow, he was, he was also a wonderful person. He, he was well-respected, a person of integrity. He was intelligent. They describe him as unselfish. Mm-hmm. He was a member of parliament. He uh, worked in the community. He was um, a respected person in terms of pushing for abolition and other social justice causes. And he loved his daughter, Elizabeth. So she, they had a very wonderful relationship, and he really encouraged her education. And her mother was apparently a wonderful person, too. And she talks a lot about ideal mothers. And I think in, when she talks about women, her mother is that quintessential ideal woman. She, they talk about how she had a peaceful, ordered home and... Uh, that created a wonderful atmosphere to live in. So 
Elizabeth uh, was blessed with a wonderful family and a privileged upbringing with lots of people coming to visit them. So she got to know all kinds of people. And her gifts as a writer were evident even as she was a young child. And one of the guests that passes through is Tennyson, the poet, who gets to read Elizabeth's poetry and says, you're pretty good as a little kid. So this, this already says we're talking about an exceptional woman in many ways. Privileged upbringing, privileged education. She learned many languages at, as, as a child, German, Latin, French, Italian, and others. I think you, Did I think she knew read, biblical languages? Well, Greek. Well? Greek. I think she, she knew Greek very well. Right. Yep. So she, I don't think she knew Hebrew, but um, she certainly knew Greek very well. So she's a, a woman who knows languages. She also did math and science and philosophy and other things. And so it's, it wasn't a traditional education she had, but it was a very thorough education. So she's... Um, yeah, she's quite a woman, and she was she was brought up as an Anglican, but there were a lot of other Christians in their lives. So she would later be described, well, as she was more ecumenical. So she she engaged with Catholics and Methodists and others. So she was uh, certainly Anglican all her life, but uh, was very comfortable working with Christians of all different sorts and varieties. But so she had this privileged, privileged upbringing, but then she had a crisis of faith kind of as a teenager. Yes, and we know about all this because she wrote her autobiography called Seven Homes. And she, when she was older, somebody said, you should write up your life story. So she did it by describing the seven houses she lived in during her life. And so she does talk about her teenage years being difficult years and talked about struggling with Christianity and seeing things in the church that didn't seem to live up to the expectations of what she thought a Christian like life. what well she didn't mention it in I think just her idea she was very idealistic and then but the people she saw in church were very human and so she saw the disconnect so she at when she was 18 uh, a friend took her for a walk and uh, really was very clear as to his understanding of what the message of the gospel was and explained it to her clearly. And he said, uh, I mean, she writes about this. He said, if you believe in Jesus, I say to you, as he said to the woman who washed his feet with her hair, go in peace, your sins are forgiven. And she talks then about thinking about this and having a real conversion experience, which um, she talked about stressing her understanding of God's love for her and her recognition that she was God's beloved child. And it's interesting because she had grown up in the church and undoubtedly had heard this message about of the gospel before, but she had never understood that Jesus loved her. And I think... Um, we would call this expression of Christianity very evangelical today. And she wrote a poem about her experience. Uh, if you Google 
you know, Rundle Charles, Elizabeth Rundle Charles, and the word Eureka, which is the title of the poem. You can find it. But I, in the poem, she says, um, Come and rejoice with me, for I have found a friend who knows my heart's most secret depths, yet loves me without end. And so, I mean, she's saying that Jesus accepted her as she was. And then she says, I knew not of his love, and he had loved so long with love so faithful and so deep, so tender and so strong. And then she concludes in a, in a very, um, I think, a beautiful way. She says, and now I know it all. I've heard and know his voice, and here it is still from day to day. Can I enough rejoice? So this expression of her deep relationship with Jesus is one that is found throughout her life. And her whole motivation for working and writing and serving others is grounded in this faith experience. So I think it's, um, I don't know, I, I think because we have her autobiography and we don't have an autobiography of very many people, we get a window into, into like into her soul, really. And so she has this very deep sense of being loved by God and called into this service. And, and that's why, um, and that ex really explains what she does with the rest of her life. So um, she's, you know, she was, her parents identified her as a good writer and she started writing and people like Tennyson said, yes, you're a good writer. So already at 22, she had published her first book, and that was the first of more than 50 books, which is a lot of writing in a life that was not ex exceptionally long. And uh, the year after she uh, wrote her first book, she married a man named Andrew Patton Charles, and that's where Rundle Charles comes from. Um, and he was a businessman primarily, uh, some people also think he was a lawyer. It's not quite clear what he did, but he had um, some businesses and a, a soap factory was one of them. And he was very interested in the welfare of the people who worked for him and had a vision of having a business that was beneficial to all those who worked for him. But he also developed a serious illness and he died 17 years into their marriage. But the weakness, like that affected the business. So they didn't do that well in terms of money. And during their marriage, she also continued to publish. And publishing was very lucrative for her, especially one of her early historical novels she wrote was on the life of Martin Luther. And that book was her most famous book. It was translated into almost all the European languages, a number of uh, languages in uh, India and also Arabic. But she foolishly sold the rights, the copyright of her book to the publisher early on. I think, I mean, she did make 250 pounds, which in her day would have been a lot. But the number of copies of the book that were sold, she would have become a very wealthy woman. So after that experience, she learned to be a more astute businesswoman and not sell the copyright of her books. 
So, um, yeah, so she was a woman who was very interested in history, and she was learned that from a child. She loved history, and many of her books are historical fiction. And other books she wrote were more devotional, and then she wrote a lot of poetry. She was interested in hymns and hymn writing, and her gifts as a translator meant that she translated a lot of old Latin hymns into English and German hymns into English. So she's very interested, interesting in, in, in the scope of her writing. She did many different kinds of writing. And the one book that I particularly like was written as kind of a travelogue. Uh, it's called Wanderings Through the, Holy, the Land. Holy Land. Wanderings Through the Holy Land. So when her husband got very ill, they decided to take a four-month holiday in warmer climates to get away from England and the dampness because I think he had breathing problems. So they went to Greece and Turkey and other places in Europe, and they also went to the Holy Land. And the benefit for us of this book, it wasn't just, oh, today, here we are, and, and describing where she was staying, but the benefit is she weaves together her own travels with scripture. And, and there are some very beautiful passages that illustrate this technique of saying, here we are, and I've been here. And then as she retells biblical stories, her experience of being in that same holy land is woven in. And I think we have a couple of examples um, of this. And one of them is uh, taken from the, the story of the Syrophoenician woman that um, this story is found... Uh, twice in the New Testament. One, she's called the Canaanite woman, and one, she's called the Syrophoenician woman. The difference is in Matthew, she's the Canaanite woman. In Luke 7, she's the Syrophoenician woman. And she's the woman who had the very sick daughter and, um, and who was brought to Jesus. She cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously uh, vexed with a devil. And so uh, the disciples said, you know, send her away. And of course, Jesus um, engages with her and says, it is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And, and this is a very difficult passage because Jesus is saying, comparing her to like the dog who just gets the crumbs. And yet her faith is such that she is willing to trust in Jesus anyway. So uh, Jesus heals the daughter and she goes back home. She finds her child no longer roaming hither and thither as Charles writes with the aimlessness of insanity or restlessness, but she was lying on her bed, peacefully resting and able to meet her mother's eyes. So there, she retells the story in a beautiful way. And then she says, once more, the veil is drawn. And she often talks about the veil in scripture, especially when it comes to stories where we don't have enough information. We get this little glimpse into the life of a woman, and then she disappears. So she calls it the veil. And she talks about these two lives. We, we just see such a little bit of their lives, and one fragment of which stands out in a vivid light for us, and then they're withdrawn into the darkness. So we get this beautiful story and then they disappear. Then in her retelling, she jumps 30 years forward 
and talks about how Paul landed at Tyre and finding uh, disciples tarried there seven days. So she, she knows scripture very well. And so she associates this story with Tyre and where Paul actually is. And we've been together, actually, Kira and I have traveled to the Holy Land, and we've been on this same place on this beach where you see the waves coming in. And, and this is what she wrote. Um, they knelt there together on these Tyrian sands, Jew and Gentile, no more dogs and children, but one family, God's one household. The disciples had learned much since they sent her away. And then with her, I would say this is a sanctified imagination she has. She asks this question. Were the Syrophoenician, an aged, gray-haired woman, and the restored daughter among that kneeling, weeping company? We cannot tell. It is enough service for one woman to render, to hand down with her memory from generation to generation, that one lesson of humility of trust, of humility and trust, and of the unfailing answer to every faithful prayer, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. So she ends her description of her journey in this area by saying the narrative of the Syrophoenician was the last association of the gospel story, which was to illuminate our Syrian journey. So I love that little story. And it, it just shows you how because she was a traveler and she had been there, and when she traveled, she absorbed the whole atmosphere. She could remember its details. So then she places these biblical stories in their context and illumines them with her sanctified imagination and brings these two stories together in a way that I think is highly unusual and imaginative, but kind of works. I mean, why not? If they had had this life-changing encounter with Jesus, they would have been believers. And 30 years later, there was Paul setting up a church. Maybe they were there. So I love so it. Cool. It is so cool. Yeah. I'm surprised that they went there with her husband being so ill because that would have been when, when we went to Israel, we had a tour bus. We could fly there. Our tour bus actually did break down at one point. But it was very easy for us to get around. But when they were there, it was very difficult. And her husband was also sick. So how are they kind of managing that? They just were excited about doing it, I guess, and went for it anyway. That's right. I mean, when she was traveling, when they were traveling to the Holy Land, uh, they were before Thomas Cook's travel service. And Thomas Cook encouraged English clergy to go to the Holy Land and made it much more affordable. He kind of mapped out where there were good places to stay and how to travel there. But this predated Thomas Cook. So she does describe some of the harrowing experiences that they had um, on their trip. Right? She, um, she writes about they had a particularly difficult day in Galilee, so someone else that they were traveling with got lost and robbed, and then their, and they were on horses. Their, yeah, their mules rolled in a river, and so everything that they were supposed to camp out with got wet. But then she still says at the end of all of this, 
We had been in the saddle for 13 hours. The alternate baying of shepherds' dogs and howling of wolves near our tents could not prevent us sleeping soundly that night on our bare camp beds wrapped up in shawls because all of their bedding was so wet. The excitement of the day, however, did not wear off immediately, and it was some time before the pictures of Galilean scenery, rocky hills, wild wooded ravines, and shady forest paths festooned with fragrant flowers, which that day's fatigues had so deeply imprinted on our minds, faded into dreams. So the Holy Land had a huge impact on her imagination. Right. Um, and I think if you go there, it's impossible for that not to happen. But it comes alive then in the way that she writes about scripture, that these scenes of the wilderness and the rocks and the flowers, all of her biblical interpretation, she'll talk about these types of flowers are found in this part of the country and she knows because she's seen them in bloom which is really cool we were talking earlier today about her retelling of mary's story and i remember you remarked about how she introduced mary and yeah, the so annunciation was she it? yeah before she talks about mary meeting gabriel she paints this picture of the land where mary would have grown up so these are the kinds of flowers that grew on the hills and um, this is what the grass looks like there and it's very very particular and how this kind of beautiful landscape shapes Mary's life as she's growing up and then this is also the landscape that she travels through on her way to meet Elizabeth. I think that's a beautiful picture of one of the ways she describes her um, understanding of scripture and the your responsibility or job as a reader is to take the letter of scripture and to make it live. And she does that, one of the ways she does that is by setting it in its context and making it live with all its colors and smells and feels, feelings, right? So it, she's a very, I think she's a very uh, careful reader of scripture and, and that background, her experience of travel fundamentally changed how she read the text, I would say. And she's so good because she is a writer of fiction as well. She knows how to enter into a story and bring a reader into the story by how she, I think like you've talked about in some of your writing that she is someone who paints a portrait and it really feels like that when you read what she writes, it's very visual and sensory. And it's partly because she got to go to the places where a lot of these stories happened. I was reading her treatment, her, her retelling of the story of Mary Magdalene, and I was very moved by her prose. Like, she, she's a poet and a writer, and it's, it's just so beautiful. You think, wow, who writes like this? But she does, right? Because she wonders, as most people do, like, why... Why is it Mary Magdalene uh, who is there at Jesus' sepulcher, right? And the different gospel stories tell different details. And she she's a very learned reader of texts. So she thinks 
that all these the variations in the different gospel stories are not game changers at all like it's part of how you tell a story and she actually calls biblical scholars to account and says essentially says you are making a mistake in approaching the biblical texts as if you were approaching a puzzle and so you get the different accounts from the different gospel stories and you try to put them together to harmonize them by pressing these puzzle pieces in places they shouldn't go. It's very interesting. And so her, her ability to read a story and get the big picture is just, I think, quite profound. And she enters into the experience of the woman. And uh, when Jesus... Um, when she calls Jesus my master, right? And um, she just uh, says, my master, Lord of my whole life, my whole being, Lord of me. So she takes the biblical phrases and ponders them and expands them. And then she says, for the, the heart needs duty as much as love, the will needs rule as much as freedom. Or to speak more truly, without dividing ourselves metaphysically into sections, we, mind, heart, and will, crave and demand and have the living Lord in our whole being. I mean, she goes on and says, Christianity for us, as well as for the Magdalene, enkindles every emotion of our hearts, commands every portion of our complex nature, for it combines the tender loyalty of a sac to a sacred memory, to a love which was proved and sealed by death, with the joyful activity of service to one who is living and commanding and teaching us all the days to the end of the world. I just love how she writes, and it, it's, it's just very beautiful. But I think that what I just read raises the issue of some of the traditional language she uses, often of servanthood. And I... I think it's really important as modern 21st century women reading 19th century women's writings to enter into that world and understand where they're coming from. And the amazing thing about uh, Elizabeth Rundle Charles' work is that we, she did it over such a long time. We have two books on Mary that she wrote over a period of 40 years. And you can compare what she thought about Mary when she was 26 and what she thought about Mary 40 years later. And there is a significant shift in her understanding of Mary. And people, uh, Krista Dowdswell, who did her master's thesis on Rundle Charles, did a careful study of these two books. And she showed that in between those 40 years, there was a lot going on in England certainly around the Catholic Church and the Anglo-Catholic Church about who is Mary and what is the theology of Mary. And she, Rundle Charles obviously was part of that discussion and came to a different understanding of Mary. Uh, at the beginning, she emphasized more Mary's servitude and Mary as a disciple. But later on, she emphasized Mary as the one who... Uh, gave life, and she she picks up on the very traditional 
Eve-Mary dichotomy that we see throughout history. So if Eve caused all the problem, Mary solved the problem. And so she does this. She, she talks about how Eve and Mary complement each other. And through Mary, life uh, comes. Like, so Mary brings life, and that elevates. Yeah, she really elevates all women and men through, through Mary, right? Yeah. And that's part of um, being influenced by people like John Henry Newman and that's other right. thinkers at that time. That's right, yeah. yeah. So she's a very, uh, you know, learned person, and her what where she comes down in terms of the women's question is very interesting. Um, I think we have, um, so her language can be traditional, but if you read it again and read it in a deeper way, you see it's not traditional at all. Yeah, we have this one quote by her um, where she talks about the ideal of womanhood. Mm -hmm. um, so she says, the ideal of womanhood, not of poor, weak, crippled womanhood, but of womanhood as God made it. That is a life which has no meaning except in relation to others, mother, daughter, sister, bride. That had become the ideal of humanity as a whole. And I think if you stop there, we feel, we can feel uncomfortable because what if you are not a mother? Um, everyone is going to be a daughter, but that also is going to be complicated for some people. Sister, you might not have siblings. Bride, you might not be married. But then the rest of the quote, she starts going through all these different verbs of what the ideal is for not just women, but for all people. So a life whose essence is love. And that means for her sacrificing and serving, renouncing, receiving, submitting, ruling, rebuking, silently suffering, fearlessly fighting, and dying when death is the way to serve. So she paints this huge portrait of all the different full ways of what it means to live a life of love. And it's really incredible, especially, I think, in her context that she's including all of that. That's right. And, and I think Rundle Charles is one of the women, one of the many 19th century Christian women that are... Um, I mean, some people would say they're proto-feminist. Uh, other people, like I think um, feminists have looked back into the 19th century for examples of proto-feminists. And, and the ones that they choose are ones like Josephine Butler, who we talked about before, who is doing radical social justice work, going out and speaking publicly when women weren't supposed to and uh, getting bills passed so that uh, women wouldn't have to be under, like the, the w women wouldn't have to undergo those terrible examinations to see if they had venereal disease and so on. But what, what, the, what history has not remembered is that Josephine Butler was doing that because she loved God and felt called. So it was the gospel that was pushing her to serve others. Rundle Charles is similar. She, her early vocabulary is quite traditional in terms of her understanding of women being in the home like her mother and serving in the home. 
but she also moves outside of the home through her work with her husband with the poor. And she's very interested in women's education and, edu and, and well, all children's education is very supportive, uses money to support schools. So she's very interested in women's work outside the home, including her own work as a writer and, and writing about causes she cares so much about. But in her work of biblical interpretation, you see a shift between how she sees the women in the Bible like Mary as being examples of submissive kind of disciples to later seeing Mary as a much different person, as the mother of Jesus and uh, you know, as the one who brings salvation. And th that difference between those two women, those two versions of her interpretation show development toward the end of the 19th century. And she's much more excited about the possibilities of all that women can do. So she writes another, another one of her very interesting books is about the lives of all women in the uh, sketches of women. And she writes it for a missionary context. And she presents um, all women in a very interesting um, way. And I, I have um, an example of that, I think, in her treatment of Eve. So in 1880, so this is somewhat between the two works on Mary that she writes, she talks about Eve and said, um, both at Old and New Testament talk, begin with the story of a woman. It is the, the first story is the sad story of the fall, how this world of ours went wrong, and the heart that drank in the poison which poisoned our whole race was the heart of a woman. So she, she talks about Eve and the fall, but she doesn't blame Eve for all the problems. And she talks about how Adam and Eve together are in, in this together, and uh, which I think is very important. Before she gets into the fall, she talks about the creation of Eve in a very beautiful way, because if you read Genesis 2, Adam is formed first, but he's alone, and then God brings various animals. Uh, he's looking for some sort of companion. And uh, she says, when finally uh, God um, puts Adam to sleep, uh, and he brings her to him, and then she writes, and then the first man forefather of us all, spoke the first human words which are report, recorded. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And here she says, for here at last was another creature who could understand and respond to his speech. So here she's seeing Adam and Eve as people get each other in, in not some sort of hierarchical relationship, but as a companion. And, and then she says, Adam had found the help meet he needed, and he was no more alone. The husband and the wife, the sacred two, no more two, as Adam said, but one, made a full world for each other, a sacred source of life for the ages. It's very beautiful. So I think she had had a very happy marriage and, and her understanding 
of the story in in the in in the Garden of Eden is very much like um, others uh, of this period, and I'm thinking of uh, the professor of at Oxford in Old Testament, and he said uh, when he read the story, he said. Uh, you have the man at the beginning at the end, and the woman at the end. And when, when you talk about her, it's like, I found my consort, my helpmeet. And he would translate that as partner, my consort. And she picks up on this idea that uh, what, what they found was um, together. And then, um, but she says, then the simple happy story is broken by a glimpse into an earlier world and talks about how they are both, they both sin and that they both fall. And so she does not buy into the negative readings of Eve as women being responsible. She says, we may snatch real blessings at the wrong time and so make them curses, but only, but God alone can give real good. So she's, so I think, um, this is where she goes beyond the story to talk about the meaning. Like she, she reads it and then says, so what is the significance of this story? And she says, they are not stories of something that was and is done with. They are unveilings in one picture, a parable of what is happening always again and again. Did God give the man and the woman up? Let them alone to reap the fruits of their sin? No, he was the father and loved and pitied them. He pitied that man and woman and all men and women ever since. And so she talks about the rest of the story and, and talks about how though they went off into the wilderness, it wasn't um, a wilderness in which God um, left them alone, but rather he would be with them. So I, I find her reading of the Genesis story very um, important. And she talks about, she even asks in the story, as she's introducing the story to this different audience, she says, what kind of story is this? And she raises the issue of genre. And I think that's because she's a literary woman. And she talks about, what is the creation story? Our first story begins in the garden, and she anticipates their question. She says, perhaps you will say, is the story fact or poem, parable or history? And her answer is, it is both. True with the deepest truth, always renewed in various forms. So she says, to get at truth in all histories, we must read them also as parables and poems, that is, as a sacred story, which does not merely gossip about external facts, but penetrates to the divine and human meanings enfolded in these. I think what she's, she, she's speaking there to people who have been influenced by uh, scholars who are approaching the Bible more rationally and they're just interested in external facts and history. And she's saying, no, no, scripture is way more than this. So she's reading the text theologically and reading, um, I think, for life. Mm -hmm. So she translates the letter into life, which I think is an approach 
which the church has always found very helpful. But it's interesting that her contemporaries, including Florence Nightingale, talked about how the preaching at Oxford had changed. And she said, they are no longer asking questions about theodicy and the problem of sin. They're, they're looking at that they're forgetting how to read the text theologically. So I find this interesting as a biblical scholar because Rundle Charles and a number of other women are living in the time when scholars are adopting methods called historical criticism and they're saying this is not a helpful method to interpret scripture or and it's not enough it's not enough it's that's right it's not enough because she is aware of the problems uh, but she's thinking outside the box in ways that they are not thinking because they're not literary scholars i think her sensitivity to the nature of language. She, she knows Greek very well. So in many of her other um, studies, like she has a book on the Beatitudes and she does a word study on what it means to be meek, for example. And so she goes through all the different meanings and because she's a Greek scholar, so she can do that kind of biblical scholarship and yet she's going beyond it because she's a writer and poet. So I, that's one of the reasons I, I find her work so refreshing. And so she would be one of the women, I would say, we need to take her biblical scholarship and add it to what we call is the canon of great books. She has many great books, including two commentaries, one on the book of Revelation and one on the book of Hebrews. And both those books she approaches kind of as allegory. Both those books are filled with metaphors and typology, and she loves that as a literary person, and she finds it very life-giving. And there she uses this term, they're veiled books, that you need to lift the veil and see Jesus in, in those books. So this image of veiling, I think modern, as, as modern people, we think, oh, Veiling's not good, right? It can be oppressive if you have to wear a veil. But Rundle Charles does not see the image of veil as an oppressive image. She sees it as a life-giving image. So you lift the veil to really look at the stories of women if we don't know their names or like we don't know enough about these women, but lift the veil and really look and you'll find more. And lift the veil on, the, on these books like the Book of Revelation there is a, um, a guy named Robert Ketcher who did his doctoral dissertation on women's writings on the book of Revelation in the 19th century. When I, I was doing work on Christina Rossetti at the time when I found this dissertation, and in that book he says there are 30 commentaries written by women on the book of Revelation in a short period of time in, in Britain, and I thought, how can this possibly be? I was trained as a biblical scholar and I don't know any of these books. Rundle Charles is, is one of the authors he talks about and he talks about how she finds in the book of Revelation a drawing into the future that will give her as a woman and all women uh, 
new hope and freedom. So the imagery in the book of Revelation is one of the reasons, I think, that pushes her to expand her vision of what is womanhood, to expand her understanding of women's roles, not simply within the home, but to expand and to do virtually everything. It's interesting to see her the genres she writes in as she gets older and as she engages more with other scholars and theologians, she is more brave in terms of what writing she takes on because the church was not that excited about women writing biblical commentaries when women didn't have a proper theological education. So one of my exciting discoveries today as I was preparing for this was I looked up her book that she wrote after her husband's death. And you're the one who knows so much about death and writings on death. So maybe you want to talk about this book that um, after her husband died, she got very depressed. And her friends gave her traditional devotional books to read, and they didn't help her. So what? Uh, so somebody said, you should go back to Luther. She'd already written a book on Luther. Uh, like a novel on a historical novel on the life of Martin Luther but this time she went back and translated Luther and when I discovered how much of Luther she translated and what she translated I was astounded it's it's so incredible to me that her what worked for her in her grief was spending a year translating Martin Luther's writings and she could do that because her German and Latin, like she knew those languages so well, which most people, I don't know, would that be common, I guess? if No, you're... I don't think it was common, but in a family that valued education, they would have seen the value of both classical language and modern languages because they would travel to Europe. Right. But also, you know, if you know Latin and Greek, you can translate... Virgil and the Bible, and, and they thought that was very valuable, and it is. And it, I also, I find it so interesting, 30 women writing on the book of Revelation. I wonder, because I know Christina Rossetti, her commentary on Revelation was dedicated to her mother after her mother died. And I wonder if some of the impetus for women writing on Revelation was how common death was for these women. Um, and that women were often closer to that because of childbirth and the death of their children. And those rates of children's death stayed high even when adults' lifetimes were lengthening. I know that she didn't have children, though. No. Neither of those women had children, but both of them had significant deaths Death, in their yeah. life. And both of them were in a context influenced certainly by the Oxford movement, which was very conservative about women's roles. And both of them read Revelation and looked to the new heaven and the new earth as the time where things that gave them hope, right? And, and that motivated them to keep working for change so that we would draw nearer to that hope, right? So I think... Um, Revelation is an important, it's obviously mm -hmm. a very important book for women, and I, I don't think we've spent enough time on this. 
I don't know of any biblical scholar that has looked at those 30 commentaries by women. An English scholar has one, and I think they, they deserve a careful study. Um, I also think that the reason that Elizabeth Rundle Charles was able to write commentaries was goes back to this project on Luther that the penny dropped for me today when I read the table of contents. And this book is on Google Books. You can look up um, her, her book. And it's called The Watchwords for the Warfare of Life by Dr. Martin Luther, translated by Elizabeth Rundle Charles. Right. And that book has, like, she's, she's read, you know, she takes excerpts from six volumes of his letters and four volumes of something else, and then his, an old translation of his commentary on Galatians. So she was working with a massive amount of material and then choosing passages that fit into categories. So she covers in her book, she covers all the major theological topics. Who is Christ? What is salvation? What is death? Who are the great figures in history? And on and on it goes. And I thought that is in that year, she got the equivalent of a theological education. And I thought, wow, there it is. That explains why she could go on and write the deep theological and exegetical works that she was able to do. It's really, really incredible. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And she wrote, and this is another example of where she's pushing boundaries. For a period of six or seven years, people met in her house on Sunday night for devotional readings, certainly during certain times of the uh, liturgical year, like Lent, for example. They would meet for a series of Bible studies. And that's where she wrote those beautiful little devotional books that you that I've I've collected a few of them, and they're they're beautiful little books, but they're also profound. They're just she she is a very deep thinker, and um, she engages her culture. She in in she asks questions about, you know, should we we how how do we as Christians engage with evolution and the Bible, and how do we engage other questions of our culture. And I thought, wow, she she is a woman, um, you know, who's worth listening to. I think she's a true theologian. When yeah, you she read is. when you read her work, it it feels like you're reading not a theology textbook because of how beautiful it is, and most textbooks are not. But it's very, I think, profound is the perfect word for it. And I I do think. Like so many of the people that we have talked about, her experience of death really shaped her thinking. So the um, dedication for her translation is to her husband, and she says, to the most beloved memory of one who fought a good fight and endured to the end, and overcame and now liveth unto God, more than conqueror through him that loved us serving him and seeing his face forever. And then when you compare that to Luther's dedication at the beginning of his writing. So she chooses those. Oh, she chooses She those. chooses to put these two little excerpts from Luther's writings that are not related, but they're both, they are related because they're both about death. Right. So following her dedication 
to her husband, she picks two excerpts from Luther's writings about death that are memorializing too. Wow. So she sets them side by side. So yeah. yeah. So it the first one is this is Luther writing. I from my most I from my inmost heart crave that to me and all mine may be given a like hour of departure with so great faith and such placid calm that is truly to fall asleep in the Lord, not to see nor to taste death, nor one whit to feel his terrors. In Luther's writing, he he often personifies death as this enemy that we are resisting. So he says, we're not going to feel his terrors, the terrors of death. And then the other one is, we here for a little while in sorrow shall at last be received into that unutterable joy to which my Magdalene with many others have gone before us and day by day are calling, encouraging and tenderly alluring us that we may follow. It's when you read the account of the death of, so Magdalena is his daughter, um, and her nickname is Lena. She, she dies with great devotion and very peacefully. And so this gives him hope and she's held up as the kind of death that we should aim for. But Luther is so torn up after the death of his daughter and he knows that he should celebrate that she is no longer suffering but he just misses her and really wrestles with that and I think that Elizabeth Rundle Charles this is her connection to Luther and we look together at the table of contents that her write her translation begins with writing on death and it ends with that as well yeah because the last entries are accounts of Luther's death yeah so I think by rest and many of the entries are about death and and eternal life and suffering so i think she's looking to luther and studying what classical theologians have said about life and death and what scripture says about life and death as her way of coming to terms with her own grief mm -hmm. and i think that became the platform then upon which she could go deeper into theology and scripture and so I, that for me is, um, so she, she has become for me um, a different, uh, I've elevated her to, the, to a higher level in terms of my respect for her as a forgotten interpreter of, of scripture. It's interesting, she was very famous, uh, but even though she wrote 50 books, people would not have known her name. Because after her famous book, The Chronicles of the Schoenberg Cotta Family, all her other books were published, even this one on Luther, sometimes don't, they don't have her name, but they have author of, right? So she was silenced. Her own name was silenced by publishers who wanted to earn more money, really. Because they owned the copyright for the, for that, that book, book, and then they wanted to sell more books by that best-selling author. So all her other books, poetry and everything, by the author of, the Chronicles of. So she was silenced in her own generation by name, but then because of the perception of her more conservative evangelical Christianity, 
that stood behind her motive well that Im- Im- pushed her to push women to jobs outside the home and and just to push the limits of the more traditional views of women she was she was um, seen as a person who who wasn't going far enough right and so she was silenced in that sense so I think she is a woman that we need to go back to and say silent no more we need to recover her as a forgotten foremother of faith who um, who read the Bible so carefully, who studied so deeply, and who really felt that her faith informed all that she did in her life of service. Because we even had, there's a part um, where she has this beautiful quotation about her sense of call and vocation that I think inspires me and I think should inspire all of us. So she writes, um, I think this is in her, yeah, it's in her autobiography, Our Seven Homes. She writes that her vocation um, can be described as the divine voice speaking through the double call of dear, plain, outward duty and of inward impulse, or should I rather say inspiration, since God himself is nearer us than any of the creatures or circumstances through which he moves us, since in-breathing is a finer expression of his work in us than impelling. She has a whole book on the Holy Spirit, and I think this is part of what you're saying, um, that her, her sense of Christian vocation and Christian impetus in pushing her to vocation um, kind of damned her in the eyes of some kind of secular feminist thought because she's writing about the divine voice speaking through her not a very popular thing to be talking about necessarily but it's so beautiful when you hear so the outward duty and then the inward impulse which then she corrects herself is actually the in-breathing of the Holy Spirit writing through her. Right. So she would feel, I mean, I I would say she is a woman who preached with her pen. Um, She didn't, and probably on those Sunday nights, she was probably preaching too. (laughs) It would be nice to be there. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we go back to where we began today uh, in terms of recovering these forgotten voices, um, it's interesting to think about her voice and why her voice might be important to recover, right? Um, I would say, when if in forgetting the women of the past, I would say by forgetting the life and works of Elizabeth Rundle Charles, we've lost an indispensable part of our heritage. In remembering people like her, in listening to these women, we gain witnesses who will continue to speak into our future. And I would say that's true. I think she, she inspires me uh, to read more carefully and to read more fully and to lift the veil to see, are there things I'm not seeing here? And, and I think that's very exciting. Yeah, I think she encourages us to be braver with our reading and, and more careful Right, like that she's paying such careful attention. That's why she can be brave in, the, in her writing. Right. Great. 
Thanks for listening to That's What She Said about the Bible, a podcast by Wycliffe College. For more information and episodes, visit our website at www.wycliffecollege.ca slash podcast.